it's the it's the person who who doesn't want to make decisions because if you make decisions then you are forced into the consequences of those decisions and you you lose options right in choosing something you're losing other things and it's sort of probably there's a, th- a fear of loss going on here loss of options because obviously it's you're sacrificing something when you choose one thing you're often sacrificing the other things you could have been doing but what's happening instead is that you're doing nothing at all so you're not you're sort of sacrificing all of the possibilities <laughs> when you think that you're being wise by not choosing some particular path so it's a far worse state to be in hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the podcast in today's episode my conversation is with dean rickles Dean is a professor of history and philosophy of modern physics at the University of Sydney, where he is also a director of the Sydney Centre for Time. Specialising in quantum gravity, he has written several books in this area, including A Brief History of String Theory, From Dual Models to M-Theory, and his recent and probably more famous book, Life is Short, An Appropriately Brief Guide to Making It More Meaningful. If you ever wanted to understand why life is so short, then this conversation is just for you. In this episode, you'll learn about why a short life is the best way to create a meaningful life, how the act of visualization can help manifest your future self, why a fulfilling life far outweighs a happy life, and how science itself ties in with life's choices and much more. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on all platforms. It helps bring more content like this to your ears and helps us engage in insightful conversations so you can keep learning and being better every day. So with that, I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation with Dean Rickles. Dean, thanks for uh, coming on. Really appreciate you um, and uh, really appreciate giving your time. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Look, I wanted to just quickly talk about uh, the work that you've been doing, and it's super fascinating, especially in the uh, in the stuff that you've been producing around uh, physics and science, as well as all the stuff to do with time and and sort of the the, the shortness of life. Do you want to just give a quick introduction into what you do? What is the Sydney Center for Time? Uh, just because I think it's a very interesting uh, department um, at the University of Sydney, but sort of give a a flavor of what it what uh, what it's all about and basically what you do there. Okay, I caught uh, just the last bit of that because my internet briefly <laughs> froze up. Though we've got a bit of a storm here at the moment. Um, you were asking about what we do at the Center for Time. So yeah, what the yeah so the what's the Sydney Center of Time all about? But also, what's your what's the type of work that you're involved in there? Yeah, uh, well, the Sydney Center for Time. So it's uh, an interdisciplinary center. At the moment, we have. Um, a philosopher, Christy Miller. We have um, a psychologist, there's a sort of time perception studies, Alex Holcomb. And then there's me and I'm in history and philosophy of science over in the science faculty. So we have three disciplines represented in there. Um, you know, we, we try and um, merge the topics so that the topics themselves are interdisciplinary. We often have conferences that involve not only these fields that I've just mentioned, but a a pretty wide range of fields, including artists and historians and theologians and physicists, um, often trying to get them to focus on some um, one specific topic. Um, 
So in terms of the work that gets done there, I mean, Christy mainly works on the philosophy of time and especially um, our experience of time and this idea of the flow of time and whether the flow of time is an aspect of reality itself, whether there's such a thing in the world outside the mind as the flow of time and things becoming rather than just being, or whether that's something um, um, internal or whether it's uh, entirely an illusion. It's not actually real at all. And we're mistaken about what we call the flow of time. Um, Alex tends to focus more on the um, sort of experimental psychology side. So we'll do things like study the, uh, the differences, um, the, dif the sort of individual differences in time um, processing speeds. You know, you might find that certain people like drummers, for example, have uh, enhanced temporal processing, which seems to be the case. So more the experimental side. And then I tend to focus more on, um, or ha have done in the past on the physics um, of time and looking at, again, whether time appears uh, in the physics at a fundamental level, or whether it seems to be either something that arises at higher scales, right? Our sort of everyday scales of energy, um, or again, whether it's um, wh whether it's missing from the fundamental physical theories. And one of the things I work on is quantum gravity, which is a sort of mixing of our best theory of, of matter and energy, which is quantum theory, and our best theory of gravitation, which is also a theory of space and time as well. And then the idea is, well, the problem is that these theories after a hundred years, over a hundred years, still haven't been unified. So we still have an absolute um, schism at the, the foundations of physics, where we don't know how our two basic theories of the world fit together at all. And what the theories we do have seem to say that there's no such thing as time. They don't contain time in the in these theories that we have at the moment. Is it the, so when you talk about the theory of that, so and trying to investigate whether there is a uh, there is a presence of time at the fundamental and, and sort of scientific level. Has it been proven mathematically that something like that does exist, or is it still conjecture at this point? So, I mean, the way it works is we don't have experimental theories of quantum gravity. What we have to do is take the two um, theories themselves as mathematical sort of theories and consider ways that we might um, merge them together. So we might think of turning general relativity, Einstein's theory of gravity, into a quantum theory by doing pretty much standard things that we always do. And when we try those methods, we see that there is no T in the equations. The T just simply is, doesn't appear in there. So we don't have evolution equations that tell us how, you know, we get from one state to another state to another state. That is not the way the theory seems to work at very small scales when we blend quantum mechanics and gravitation together. So it's, yeah, it's missing from the equations, quite literally from the mathematical formalism that we would get using natural, fairly natural methods. Is there a, something to be said about the philosophy of, of modern physics? Because I know that it probably shouldn't be applied just to modern physics, it should just be applied to just physics in general, and that entire field of applying a philosophical layer on top of that. Is there something, is there an importance to having a philosophy, uh, some sort of lens of philosophy that's putting a spotlight on sort of that scientific realm and analyzing it? Because yes, there is that's that, yes, you have that science, you have the math behind it, 
but the philosophy is still missing. And I feel like there's still a lot of research to be done in that field. Uh, do you feel like that's something what the Center of Time is trying to do? Uh, that's exactly what the Center for Time does. Yeah, I mean, so it will focus a philosophic. So Alex is a psychologist, but he's a philosophical psychologist. So the way he approaches that subject is sort of always through this lens of philosophy and considering, for example, other possibilities, other alternative explanations to some orthodox explanation that you often find in science. Um, one of the things that um, philosophers are good at is considering um, a larger set of ways that the world could be. So the physicists generally have their, you know, like the old fashioned word is paradigm. They work within a particular fixed way of viewing the world, which has a certain set of laws and whatever is beyond them, well, they, they just can't consider it. Now what's happening and what's interesting about the field that I work on quantum gravity is that um, it's kind of forcing you to accept that that paradigm is probably wrong. So you're going to have to consider new ways that the world is in order to solve the problem, including new approaches that don't involve time. You need to reconsider what space and time and reality might be, because they're certainly not what we uh, have supposed them to be in, you know, in our recent physical theories. So there's definitely going to be some kind of overturning. And it's definitely the case that you need philosophy for that. And always in the past, whenever there's been some kind of overturning of a previous theory, it's been philosophically minded scientists who have been involved. And to be honest, this this split between philosophy and the sciences is is a very recent uh, development. And it's mainly, you know, caused by un the university systems and the special specialization that happens, which pulls people apart, pulls disciplines apart. In the old days, it used to be that somebody could easily be a, I mean, they used to call it natural philosophy, physics. And it would include other subjects as well. So there was no division between philosophy and the sciences. They were just all one seamless whole. And you, what you were doing was considering the world as a whole, nature, and applying wisdom to it. Right? That's what philosophy is. It's you know, it's the, it's the love of wisdom, and that applies to all um, all possible fields. And it used to. And it's sad that we've lost this um, this. Uh, sort of higher level view of the world and how it fits together. Because what happens is you end up with a situation where people um, don't even give consideration to the other possible fields and they sort of just push it on, uh, away from themselves and say, that's there are experts in that field that deal with that subject. So I don't need to, you might think of things like, you know, medicine, um, climate modeling, uh, energy and, you know, the physics of energy mm -hmm. and these kind of things. And it's not really a good thing because you have um, a population that doesn't really uh, consider the, you know, the interactive nature of knowledge. And that's when you get into into problems, because, the, as I said, the people in each of these fields, which are now very specialized, aren't very good at looking outside of their own field to see how it might impact other realms and other bits of the system. So I think system thinking is probably very good. Yeah, and I think so, it speaks to the the notion of knowing, and this doesn't just apply within sort of this, the, the the work that you're doing, but just in general, being able to be creative enough and have sort of the knowledge of one specific area, but then have be able to create connections between different um, inter interdisciplinary areas, even if they 
at a high level don't seem relevant or correlated in any way, mm-hmm. maybe underneath at the fundamental level they are. And that's interesting to what, you know, sort of a test to what you're doing at the center of time and specifically with time. I think, you know, I want to sort of drill into that a little bit and sort of loop back to sort of quantum gravity towards the end is mm-hmm. time obviously is very, very interesting. It's very mysterious. And obviously you, there's a book that you wrote, Life is Short, an appropriate brief guide to making it more meaningful. And in there, obviously, by itself in a topic, you'll say, well, at the highest level, there has no re- bare relevance to physics or science. It's just maybe a productivity book or whatever, maybe in trying to be, live your best life. But there are sort of undertones of how all of this connectedness comes about. Do you want to give a brief overview of what that book is all about and I'll put the link to sort of in the show notes below for the audience, but sort of a synopsis on the book and then we can go from there. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you say, I mean, that book um, does pretty much what I, what we, what we were just speaking about. There's um, not only philosophy, but there's um, mm-hmm. bits of ethics in there. There's psychology of time. There's neuroscience of time. There's depth psychology and sort of individuation and Jungian psychology. And there's also physics and there's also bits of um, even literature. So it's trying to bring all of the fields together on one specific topic, which is the reasons for death and the reasons for the shortness of life. And to give a synopsis, um, the idea is basically that um, there's a, there's a necessity to um, having death or at least a finite boundary and finite boundaries in order to have a meaningful existence, because without having that finite boundary, you are not compelled to make decisive actions. You could consider exploring many, many possible options, and they wouldn't have quite the same weight. And yet it's in these decisions um, and these decisive actions that forge your character, basically. They forge what you are. And that is what is the sort of the meaning of your life is forging this character, one of the meanings it's not the the one on the one and only meaning of life, but it's one possible meaning of life is how you forge your own character by making particular decisions and foregoing other decisions that you could have made, other options that you could have made. So it's kind of this idea of um, forging a path through a space of possibilities, which wouldn't be um, an issue if there weren't that finite boundary forcing you to mm-hmm. make these decisions, make these choices at each time. So okay. So, that, so that's the synopsis. So if there's a, so the question is if one was to live their life, but there is a, a an unlimited amount of options available to them as they move through life, how do they make the best optimal decision to forge their life that the best that they can be? I'm sure that, I'm sure you, you and myself have gone through a lot of mistakes in our life. We've, um, mm-hmm. We have this internal feedback loop that we say, oh, okay, well, if this doesn't work for me, I'll go somewhere else. I'll steer the boat in another, another direction. But how do you guide or sort of tell people, especially people who are young, coming out and sort of going into the world and say, well, I don't want to be that, be that person. I want to live the best life. How can someone use that? mentality and that that philosophy to out of a a sea of unlimited options to sort of become the best person that they can be yeah well i mean i don't know i mean there might be a 
there might be an initial mistaking thinking in terms of the in terms of this best person that you could be i mean one of the things one of the ideas of the book is so you mentioned that there's this massive pos- of options massive possibilities and the problem we face at any time is okay well which one of these are we going to actualize mm-hmm. and one of the major themes of the book is well to a certain extent it doesn't matter so much which one the main thing is to choose a particular one and it might end up being the wrong path but it's always better and you always feel this when you do make a decision even if it went wrong it was always better to have done it because there's always something that you learn from going down a particular path i th- the, one of the the worst thing in the book and i call it the provisional life following this is a sort of um a phrase of cg young the psychologist cg young's is this idea of the provisional life and if you are just leaving all of these options open and not choosing any of them, then you're basically living in a virtual reality. So you're not actually living at all, right? It's, it's a state of sort of stagnation, a state of inaction. So even if you're choosing something which might not lead you to your best life, it is still an actual decisive act that is forging a path and actually making your life real. So it's a difference between real life and virtual reality, essentially. What's going on is- and, so are you saying course, that, and of course you're not. So I was just going to say, is is are you saying that the provisional life is where there is a, it's the the individual who's trying to test everything and anything, or could be is that the person who doesn't take any action at all and just sits idly by, waiting for the world to pass by them. That's exactly it. It's the it's the person who who doesn't want to make decisions because if you make decisions, then you are forced into the consequences of those decisions and you, you lose options, right? In choosing something, you're losing other things. And it's sort of probably there's a a fear of loss going on here, loss of options, because obviously it's, you're sacrificing something. When you choose one thing, you're often sacrificing the other things you could have been doing, but what's happening instead is that you're doing nothing at all. So you're not you're sort of sacrificing all of the possibilities when you think that you're being wise by not choosing some particular path. So it's a far worse state to be in. Do you feel like the fact of someone not taking any action at all is going to have ramifications down the road? Because at the point at the point where they don't make decisions or they don't make hard decisions, it seems in that instance they've got some sort of satisfaction of playing it safe, so to speak. But in the long term, that will manifest into something much more um, severe and detrimental where they haven't made the decisions they should have made and then waiting until something happens and transpires where they have are starting to have regrets. Because my understanding is that, as you said, everyone has to make decisions and there is an opportunity cost of foregoing something else because of that. And then you get this sort of FOMO effect and, you know, I, I could be doing this and doing that. But the fact that you're not doing anything at all is probably the worst decision you can make. Yeah. I mean, in terms of what you've just said, the opportunity cost, you've, you've not pursued anything. It's like maximal uh, opportunity cost. You, you, you've maximally lost out. And the phrase in, um, in Jungian psychology is uh, that you will end up with uh, an enormous amount of unlived life because you've missed out on all of the opportunities and done nothing and you end up with neuroses in this way i mean it's the you know it's the classic um they call it the poor eternus complex and i mentioned this in the in the book the idea that 
you're trying to stay eternally youthful, right? It's an eternal childhood where you don't want to make decisions and you want to have everything as, as possible. And it's almost like a godlike state where you're not limited. And as you say, once you get a certain um, way through your life, well, you're limited uh, tremendously because you've done nothing and you have no actual life to call your own because you haven't done anything, you haven't chosen any particular path that have forged um, a life. So you haven't lived a life. So you have unlived life. Hmm. And this causes neuroses down the line. Is there a recipe for someone to, you know, especially when they're at a crossroads, where we're at multiple crossroads and there's like multiple forks in the road and they need to figure out what they want to do. Should I travel here? Should I get this job? Should I move? Should I do this and do that? How do you, is there a decision-making framework that you can prescribe or is there one in general that someone can use to figure out the best decision they can make or the optimal decision they can make? Or is it more a case of everyone's different, everyone needs to make up their own mind, um, or is there a systemized approach to trying to figure out, well, instead of making no decision, I need to make one decision, but I want to make the best decision. And how do I do that? What's what's the what's the recipe for that if if it exists? Yeah, well, I can't imagine that there would ever be a, a systematic version of that. I mean, one of the problems that you face in this situation is it's almost the opposite to this poor Eternus phenomenon, which is the Senex. Um, phenomenon, which is the old the old man rationalizing one. So you're, what you're trying to do is, in this case, you're paralyzed because there are too many options and you want to make the best option. So you don't want to, you know, um, so you're overanalyzing and you're overthinking the future. I mean, in this case, and this is what, what um, uh, C.G. Jung says in response, is that it doesn't really matter. If you're, if you're in such analysis paralysis as this, and you're constantly worrying about which one is the right one. Well, I mean, you will have a set of options. And the fact that you've got a set of options means that they are options for you, which means that any of them will do. It's basically a case of anything. At, at, a, at a certain stage, when you're in this paralysis situation, any path will do. And it might not be the right one, but this, is, this can only come out once you've followed it for a bit. And then you will at least have gained some experience. You will at least have actually done something and you'll also have gained the experience of choosing of actually making a decision and it's a muscle that you have to flex this whole business of sort of um being decisive and it's difficult it's surprisingly difficult and the nature of the difficulty is as you said you want to make the best one you don't want to screw things up because you know they're precious the reason why you know they're precious is because you know that time is finite and limited and that's the whole point of the, of, of the book is that it's precisely that limitation at the end that's always in mind, even if you don't consciously think it's there. It's always sort of hovering this idea of death and the limitation. And that's why it makes it so difficult to make these crisis type decisions, because, you know, you know, time is running out. This is going to send me down a path. I'm going to use up a bit of this precious time and it might not be the correct one. And, you know it can't be the case that the correct one is to make no decisions. That would have been a, the sort of the worst decision of all, because then you don't yep. do anything. You don't gain anything. Uh, I think I always go back to something that Steve Jobs said in his sort of speech, and it sort of resonates with me and sort of 
the the value of time and he says you know remembering that you are going to die is the best way i know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose you are already naked there's no reason not to follow your heart so i think it speaks to that notion of like look you know we're all gonna end this sort of nihilistic view of the world but it's an optimistic nihilistic view and they're saying well you know you have literally we're all going to sort of perish at some point, but you might as well do something that matters to you and make a, mm. you know, make a decision that's going to, and it may be the wrong decision, but at least you'll yeah. figure out your way and you'll figure out what best suits you. And then I think the fact of making this, any decision is the right course of action for, for someone to take. Yeah. And as you say, look, I mean, even if it is, I mean, there's not really any such thing as the wrong decision. I mean, you know, you learn what something is by its by seeing its negations and seeing the, the things that it, it, it is not. So by going down mm -hmm. these other paths, you realize, no, it's not that. It's not that one. It's not that one. And you're sort of focusing in on what exactly it is. I mean, in as much as there is something systematic, you could say, you sort of hinted at it there in what you just said with the Steve Jobs quote, which is that, <laughs> I mean, if you're going to choose something, you might as well choose something that you would like to do anyway and brings you joy. I mean, a lot of these podcasts I see, it's almost like there's this um, pathological desire just to like, I don't know, churn the activity out and just keep going and keep doing stuff and sort of gaining, I don't know, gaining often money or something like that. But really, if you're doing what you would do, regardless if you were paid, then you can't really go wrong in any direction. But I mean, the problem is a lot of people don't know that yet. So they don't know the thing that gives them joy yet. And they don't know the thing that they would do if they weren't paid. It takes a bit of time to realize, you know. And that sort of ties back in with, things. you know, making a decision, trying things, experimenting with things. And then eventually, once you get into the rhythm things, you'll figure out what the thing you love to do. And then you don't have to either be paid for it or not. And if you do get paid for it, fantastic. But if not, then you still enjoy it at the end of the day. Uh, is there something to, to look, be said to, there, about? There seem to be. In, Sorry, go ahead. So there seem to be sort of there seem to be infinite possibilities in this world as well. So if you go down a particular path, there's always going to be something unexpected. And even if you think that you've absolutely got the correct path, and you you know this is like what I want to do, there's going to be unexpected things and pitfalls down that path as well. There's always going to be surprises. Uh, but that's sort of you know what makes life interesting. Mm -hmm. So it's always going to open new things up regardless is there is there anything that you can say about children and the raising of those children to be able to, to i guess make a decision and and sort of uh you know or is there sort of some predisposition to certain people where they some people are much more better at trying different things and taking action versus those who are more anxious you know is there maybe is this during sort of the 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 phase where they're adolescent age where their parents are not giving them enough exposure or uh, maybe they're overly protective of of their children how do we change that and how do we make sure that the sort of the next generation of kids coming through are able to to make these hard decisions but embrace those hard decisions hmm. Well, it's a good question. I mean, I, I'm not sure there's a, a source of of these abilities, a sort of environmental source. You find, 
you know, kids growing up in it, in what looked like the same environments being radically different in their approach to life. One will be an introvert, one will be an extrovert. Um, even in the case of, you know, very like children, very close in age. So it's difficult to put it, um, uh, to put it in the environment like that, but there's certainly, I would imagine opportunities for, for teaching, I suppose, teaching sort of certain kinds of failures, sort of the acceptance of what would mm. be considered failures, but are really explorations, the idea of exploration and play and trying things out and the, and having, and just sort of feeling the pleasure of finding things out and even getting things wrong, knowing that it's still an ex, a learning experience. I mean, really the, all of the things wrong that, that went wrong are sort of the most impactful in terms of the emotional mark it makes on you the impactful learning experiences that you can have they're the things that you need to avoid they're the things that sort of matter the most are the, often the things that went wrong right you know the learning mm -hmm. mechanism is based on the emotional intensity of these experiences so you know there's like really nothing wrong with things going wrong or things being having sort of negative outcomes because they're still learning opportunities is there, I feel like when someone is trying to make that decision and a lot of, you know, people have, one thing that humans are great at is imagination and imagining um, what their life could turn out to be, both negatively and positively. A lot of us now, unfortunately, as we get older, we look towards the sort of more pessimistic route of, I don't know, what happens if this happens? What If we're younger, you know, children are much more imaginative in a positive sense, but Notwithstanding that, I think the idea of visualization and figuring out, okay, how do I live a life that I can actually vividly see in my in my in my mind's eye? And is there something to be said about that and and the power of that? Oh yeah, I mean, as I mentioned in I mentioned this in in the book. I mean, there's been experiments done on this. One of the, one of the one of the problems uh, that humans have, and this goes back to some of, one of the things we study at the center of a time, is this thing called hyperbolic discounting, which is, you know, we sometimes call it the problem of future selves. Um, we seem to, I don't like to call it that. I prefer to call it me in the future, or, you know, you in the future, because it's still you. Um, but we tend to discount. Uh, the further things get into the future, we are worse at visualization. And that means that we are more likely to discount what is going to happen and what things are going to be like and what we can sort of plan for relative to that future self. So we might, you know, not, uh, we might not save uh, as much as we should because we discount that future self. We might not take care of our health as much as we should because we discount the future self. Whereas it, if the effects happened immediately or even one day later of, you know, doing some, starting some, um, you know, gym program, going to the gym or something like that, or learning an instrument. If we had the instantaneous response, we would be extremely good at it because we can vividly project ourselves at short distances into the future, right? We can, we can see what it would be like in a week because all of the other background conditions are not going to change that much. So it makes it easier to visualize and imagine in a week's time what's going to happen. Um, and there's experiments being done on this. And what they show is that we tend to use the same areas of the brain when we're thinking about future selves as we do when we're thinking about strangers. 
So we treat our future selves as if they are strangers and therefore, you know, humans tend not to value what happens to strangers as much as what happens to them or at least people very near to them. So what and what happens is this business of visualization that you mentioned, you can train yourself to more strongly visualize how it will be for you in the future and get in, uh, strong images of what it would be like if you could play this instrument or what it would be like if you had this kind of you know health profile or had this kind of uh, lifestyle. Um, and it affects what happens when you do these brain scans. You, you, you start shifting from um, using the areas of the brain that are responsible for processing stranger information, and it starts to go towards what you're doing when you're processing things about me, egocentric data. So there is definitely something to be said. And, and what happens then, if you start to shift more towards viewing your future self as just you, then you're more likely to care and, and you know, give proper attention to that future version of you and sort of implement goals and plans and strategies and steps towards creating whatever vision it is that you have and not being so, you know, we're, we're kind of pretty terrible to ourselves, our future selves often. We sort of, you know, we land them with all sorts of bad decisions that we make now. And it's, you know, those ones in the future that have to reap the consequences. We would never do these things to ourselves in the in the immediate present. Mm. We would never drink to excess if we got a hangover instantaneously after each drink. It's well, I mean, that's the it's sort of delayed gratification and everyone wants that feedback loop, instantaneous feedback loop now, now, now. Mm. And they don't really understand, well, this is going to have long term effects down the road. And I feel like that idea of humans trying to uh, prepare their lives for the future is always tough, both financially, you know, for their family, for themselves. And so they're always living in the present and as, as you should, but then be more cognizant of like, well, what is the impact I'm going to have on myself down the road? And, you know, trying to figure out how to tighten that feedback loop uh, much faster. But in many cases, because of the, the, the delta um, and the latency between myself and my potential future self in 10, 20 years time, there is not, there's that significant gap that I can't really anticipate. So because of that, I'm trying to figure out how do I best balance that approach with living in the now and, but also preparing for the future and, and being the best that I can be. And it feels like visualization, you know, whether it be, I don't know how you would practice visualization. It would, would it be something that you would, you know, do on a morning basis? How do you incorporate visualization into your routine when you're so um, inundated by life's, you know, many many things that you have to do? You know, is it is it a fact that you should think about it before you go to sleep or every time you wake up? How would you integrate that into your uh, into your daily lifestyle? Yeah, I mean. I mean, I can. I'll get to that in one second. I mean, one one thing first to to say about this, um, the delayed gratification thing, is that it's not necessarily irrational. I mean, it, it might be perfectly rational, depending on your environment, to delay gratification and take what you can now, because your environment is so uncertain. If you're in a war-torn area or something, that you have to just simply work with a shorter time horizon and ignore the future. So it's not necessarily something always bad. To do this sometimes it can be a good you know survival instinct almost um now in, ter in terms of the visualization i mean 
I mean, there are a few different ways of doing this. I mean, one is to do it just like a meditation. If you've got time for a meditation, you've got time to strongly imagine the entire, you know, it can't just be a, a picture of you, I don't know, with like a, a muscly body or something like that. It has to be sort of an overall package and imagining what the day is like and how it would be and how you would get there and how it would affect other areas of your life. I mean, one of the things I've started thinking in terms of is, and I've done this for a long time without realizing it, but it was another podcast that made me realize that this is what I had been doing, which is having um, uh, separate um, lists. So one, so there's the, obviously the to-do lists, everybody has to-do lists, but there's also this sort of longer um, delayed gratification, future focus to be list. So the idea is that you've got a vision of what you want to actually be, not what you want to do. The person you want to be is in the future. That one stays pretty much stable. So that's sort of your, you know, at the top of your to-do list is your to-be thing. And then there's a whole bunch of lower categories here that are supposed to somehow get you there. And these will change a lot because obviously you can't, you know, you can't predict exactly what's going to happen each time, each day, each week. So they're going to be messed around with a bit, the, to, the bits on your to-do list. So that changes very often. I generally will change my to-do lists on a very regular basis, like once a day you know, maybe every couple of days, and they'll radically alter all the time. But this overall um, goal at the top generally stays completely stationary throughout. And there's a nice thing, um, again, I got this from a podcast, uh, a nice quote of Bill Gates. I don't often quote Bill Gates, but it's a really good quote, which is that um, we tend to, people tend to underestimate what they can do, underestimate, overestimate what they can do in a year, and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. In 10 years, you can absolutely radically transform your characteristics, your lifestyle. You can become a musical genius. You can become a, a, you know, a language expert. You can become so many things in 10 years. So if you have even sort of this 10-year to-be list item, then the things you can do are absolutely staggering. And, to, and if you keep that in mind as your visualization when you're meditating... Um, then it's basically just a task. It's almost like solving an equation. What what steps are a computer program? What steps need to go here to get to this state here? And these are always going to change because we, as you know, the Bill Gates quote mentioned, you underestimate what you can do at these short time scales, but you don't. You're not necessarily underestimating what you can do in this very long time scale. So it's you know it's kind of useful to have these two um, modes of thinking in mind. The very long view which is a battle against delayed gratification. That's sort of your, you know, your shield against delayed gratification and the fact that we do tend to do these things. And you're acknowledging the fact that we're very bad in terms of making decisions and following through on our short-term to-do lists. So you're sort of balancing yeah. that. I, I think the notion of like having that to-be list is, is super powerful because it doesn't change, I mean, it does change uh, over the course of your life but it doesn't change in the immediate short term and you can either i feel like that can be done both on a mental um, on a mental level during meditation or you could even write it down and maybe come back to it every have every year or so and then make sure that you're sort of trudging towards that goal because i feel like there's yeah everyone has all of these to-do lists and you know these long aspiring list of you know i want to do this and do this and have family and kids and um you know own a nice house 
but they don't. There's a, there's a bit of a disconnect on how they where they want to be and then how to get there, and then I think they mm. that sort of chasm is sometimes needs to be a bit more transparent. So I feel like having that visualization, but also being actually sitting down and and thinking about how you're going to get there and probably even writing that out is probably one of the best ways you can to sort of um, strive towards those goals. Yeah, but I mean, look, the the important thing is that the the problem with to-do lists is that um, people people tend not to live up to them. So it's very easy to quickly get disappointed with that mode of writing lists. Whereas if you have this more stable one, well, it's hard to get disappointed about it because it's generally always going to be there. Right. This 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 higher order to be list is not going to get buffeted around by the fact that you failed this week to meet your goals, because this is a longer ter- longer term target. So it's kind of it sort of I don't know, it allows you to cope with the, you know, the vicissitudes and the fact that this lower short timescale stuff gets moved around so much and is uncertain because you've always got this certain thing to aim for here. Yep, exactly. Uh, and then last thing on this, I think there's a one thing that I've really started to use is sort of, uh, I think Tim Urban has a great blog on this called Your Life in Weeks. And he has um, a sort of like a poster or like a one pager of little dots lined up. And there's 52 dots for, I think, 88, 90 years. And then effectively, you, that's your entire life on one page. And then every week you have to, you know, scribble in or color in one of those squares. And it really gives you a sense of how much you've lived and how much you have left. And it's sort of like a, it's a nice uh, kick in the backside to say, look, what have you done? Everything that you could do in that past week to get to where you're going. And so I think it's a good reminder for all of us to sort of live the best lives that we can. Um, and sort of, uh, you know, do the thing that's, hard but also you know fulfilling at the same time um let's quickly go down into sort of the the physics back to sort of quantum gravity because i think it's it's pertinent to sort of explore that realm a little bit more do you want to explain a little bit about what actually we all know gravity but what is quantum gravity specifically and how can it shed some light on the relationship of that realm and in terms of sort of time and, and everything that we've discussed so far (laughs) <laughs> okay, that, I mean, that's, that's a tricky one. Um, so, I mean, quantum mechanics is character, characterized by a couple of things, basically. I mean, we usually think of quantum mechanics as meaning discrete or coming in grains or chunks or something like that. You know, it's the idea that whereas in classical physics, Maxwell's theories and so on, we might think that some system could have any energy level um you know if there's an energy level here and an energy level here well there's also infinitely many energy levels that some system could occupy in between as well not the case in quantum mechanics and we have these things called quantum jumps where there are very definite states that a system can have like an electron um, an atom for example and it can't have the states in between so it's either in one or the other so there's the discreteness aspect that will play a role in, in quantum gravity. And there's always this, there's also this some um, aspects that we think of in terms of, you know, in the movies, it's usually Schrodinger's cat, right? You, you, you will see this in science fiction movies these days. The idea that 
if you've got a quantum system that you're not observing, and the, and the example is Schrodinger's cat, so you've got a cat in a box. Inside that box, you put a piece of material that has a, a probability of a half of decaying or a half of not decaying. And, you know, so, so one of the characteristics of quantum mechanics is it, it's also probabilistic, right? You can't tell definitely when you open that box whether the cat is going to be alive or dead. It has a 50% chance of being alive and a 50% chance of being dead. But the idea is before you look into the box to determine which one it's going to be, it's not in either state. It's not either alive or dead. It's in this thing called a superposition of 50% alive, 50% dead. So neither one nor the other. Now, in Einstein's theory of gravity, the whole point of that theory is that gravity is an aspect of space-time and curved space-times. You usually see this example of a something like a trampoline surface, which is supposed to represent the space-time. And the idea in general relativity is that a mass, an object with mass or energy, will influence the space-time by curving it around itself. So if you imagine a planet in space-time, well, it's modeled by this trampoline and a bowling ball or something, and it will impress into the space-time and curve it. The way this explains gravity is that if you imagine a marble also on this trampoline coming in, right? So you've got your bowling ball on the trampoline, marble comes in, it usually wants to go into a straight line, but it can't because there's an obstacle here that's curving the space-time, so it gets dragged around into a sink, which is basically sort of how we explain the phenomenon of gravity. It's a mass that warps the space-time around itself that then transforms the tracks that other objects are moving on, which look, have the appearance of gravitational forces. So it's not really a gravitational force at all. It's a aspect of curved space-time and things just moving in the shortest possible path that they can in curved space-time. Now the question is what happens when this bowling ball is a quantum mechanical system that has discreteness, as I said, and can also be in these strange states where it's neither for example, in this position or in a position over here or a position over here, but is in a superposition of many possible positions. Well, what that means is that your space-time is going to probably be discrete, grainy, so you're going to have atoms of space. And what it also means is that your space-time isn't going to have fixed geometries because it's going to be itself in a superposition if this object is in a superposition. Right? You imagine that Schrodinger's cat in the box. If it's dead, it's in this position. If it's alive, it's standing up. That's two different configurations of mass and energy. So that's going to have different space-times around it. And if you've got a superposition of these things, you've got a superposition of space-times, which is a weird thing to try and imagine. Right? You don't have definite spatial distances between things. You don't have definite temporal intervals between events they're in superpositions which means they don't have any and then so all of the all of the standard interpretations of quantum mechanics come into play here in this context as well one of the standard approaches is that when we look inside that box it's our act of observing that collapses it and bang it becomes either alive or dead the cat in that box likewise with the gravitational case when we observe the planet or whatever it is bang, it takes on its position. 
Now, the way this relates to the book, and it does relate a little bit to the book, is that there seems to be in quantum mechanics some necessary role for the participation of an experimenter or an observer in bringing about what actually happens. So this now fits what I mentioned earlier about this. We have many possibilities that we can choose to actualize. That's very similar to a quantum mechanical system. It's almost like a quantum system can be in a superposition of many possible states, and then it takes an act of an observer participator to determine which it's going to give us or which of a class of outcomes it's going to give us. So we might you know, set an experiment up so where we're trying to measure the polarization of light. And the idea is that the universe doesn't know what it's going to do until we've told it what kind of results it's going to give us. And we won't know exactly what result it's going to give us. We don't know whether it's, you know, an electron, for example, is going to be spin up or spin down. But we can tell it which sort of line, which axis it's going to manifest those properties for us along. So we get to say what the universe is going to do next. And it doesn't know what it's going to do next. Otherwise, it's sort of in a provisional life of its own until an observer comes along and says, OK, we're going to we want you to manifest this class of properties, and then it will give us one or the other with certain probabilities, which is a little bit like the, the humans. So the, so the humans making these decisions are telling the universe what to do. And there's a sort of almost like a, a cosmic responsibility involved in this. And this is why this is where I think a lot of the meaning comes from. This is sort of the, the punchline of the book is that we're cosmically responsible for what the universe does next. And our decisions carve not only our path, but they carve the universe's path in a small way around our local, you know, area, essentially. So we have this sort of, you know, sort of extreme power in, in our position in the universe, which most people don't quite realize. They feel passive and they're absolutely very far from passive. They're sort of these cosmic co-creators of the universe, which is a huge amount of sort of, um, a huge amount of meaning that that comes from that from having this close role with the universe and it sort of enables us to hopefully i i would hope take a bit more responsibility in choosing our actions very very wisely and choosing our actions in such a way that they give us the kind of universe that we would like to live in because they're having ramifications on the universe that we're living in that other people are living in so it sort of impacts i think things like um, the climate change problem, the population problem, any problem that involves um, the future condition of our world um, is related to the actions we make now. So if we feel responsible for them, like custodians, then we're going to put a hell of a lot more consideration into the actions that we make because we know that they're carving the future that we're about to live in sort of collectively as a, as a species. So I and think that goes back to, nice, um... and sorry, that goes back to the the visualization you mentioned. We spoke about earlier, where if we collectively visualize ourselves as a species in ten, twenty years, but we don't view it as an other, but we view it as the self, then it mm -hmm. will all be driven to make change in the world and 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 prepare for a better future. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. So I mean, the idea is that these these global problems, these sort of 
catastrophic risks are essentially collectivized versions of what is happening at the individual level when it comes to these things like temporal discounting of our future selves. So there's exactly an analogy, an analogous collective version of that, which is obvious really, because, you know, what happens at the collective level is the result of these actions, aggregated actions of individuals. So if you can tune it so that there's something more coherent happening, you know, in a nice direction, in a good direction, then you can, I mean, you can generate whatever future you like, you know, consistent with the laws of physics, it's sort of in our power to generate whatever future we like. So there's enormous power there. Uh, is there something to be said about the human lifespan in and of itself? I mean, as I mentioned before, with the, the sort of Tim Urban, your life in weeks, you know, most of us will probably hopefully live up to like 80 and 90, but some will live longer, some will be live shorter. Is there, is that, is that absolute in within the, within sort of that notion of time where if we were extended by, let's say 50 years and we live up to 150 or even 200 years, is that going to make us happier at the end of the day, the fact that we can live longer or it's really relative to how we want to live our best of our lives because I feel like the longer our lives can be, the more time we can dilly-dally, we can twiddle our thumbs and not really have a forcing function to, to do something about it. Whereas, you know, the shorter life, the more the less time you have and the more actions and the more quick decisions you, can, you have to make. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, we, exactly. We would be in, I would imagine, exactly the same state as we are now. And we would be moaning again how short life is and how it's hard to fit everything in, regardless of how you expect. As long as there was always a finite boundary, it could be a thousand years. It would be like, oh, if it was only 2000 years, then I could do all, all of these things. I think it would be it would make a huge difference for those first group of people that got the extension because they would know that there's something special about the extension. This extra 50 years that they're getting, for example. You know, if there was some treatment that just definitely gave you another 50 years that came about next week, the people that took it would, I think, use it more wisely than if it then became normalized. I mean, it would be good to sort of, yeah, maybe even keep that knowledge from them <laughs> so that they, so that you could sort of just say, by the way, you know, there is this thing that we have and now you can sort of all the things that you regretted not doing, okay, now you can go and do them and take it seriously again. So there'd be some, there'd be some merit in, in having this sort of sneaky second chance to correct the mistakes. But I don't think it's necessary. It would matter so much, as you say, if we expanded it, we, we would be in very much the same condition. We would spread our time out a bit more. We'd be more expansive with things because we wouldn't feel the urgency. We'd, but we would still, we would still feel the same sort of shortness. We would still feel the shortness. Yeah, it's all relative. What is your thoughts about, obviously AI is getting a lot of the headlines right now. There's a lot of stuff happening on ChatGPT, generative AI, AI to make our lives better, AI to make our lives mm -hmm. much more pleasant, replacing jobs. And I think AI is going to obviously revolutionize and the, the way we live our lives. And that sort of ties in because with time, because I feel like, well, now we can we're free to do the things that we want to do and ai can be used to replace menial repetitive jobs and then humans can be used 
in a way that can be, you know, much more fulfilling in many ways. And they can start to pursue their goals and dreams, I would say, because of AI. But I think that's one perspective of it. Is there something to be said about how AI plays in all of this and how we, all of us, can sort of live um, our lives making the right decisions um, within the context of sort of this growing, emerging area of artificial intelligence? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not all, I mean, obviously one of the huge sources of meaning for many people is precisely their jobs. So although they might moan about them often, um, without their jobs, and you often find this as soon as people retire, even if they claimed to have not liked their job very much, they realized it was giving them a huge source of meaning and giving their, you know, each day something to hang this, it sort of structures their day and structures their lives. And they're absolutely lost when their job goes and they often die much more quickly than they really should be dying because they've got nothing to fill it with. So it's all well and good having the AI take over certain kinds of jobs, but you can't just do it sort of throw it at people, you know, in an instant, there has to be some sort of um, time during which people can sort of become accustomed to having the ability to have more leisurely lives and pursue more creative goals and these kind of things. Cause not many, not everybody has this, this sort of mindset that it, it takes a little bit of time and it takes a certain kind of background and even a certain kind of person to think that it's very easy to just go and get some sort of hobby and start creating art and start create composing music and learning, you know, languages and these kind of things. Not everybody's built like that. So they had to be sort of, um, led, I think, into that kind of new way of, of living. If that's where we are going, it's uh, something that would take a fair amount of time, I think, so that you don't destroy people's lives and, the, and their mean, take their meanings away. So I think you have to you know, treat it with a, a hell of a lot of care and attention in how it's rolled out, this kind of thing. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think it's still a very, very interesting it's growing space as well, and there's going to be a lot of um, you know positive and negative consequences because of all of this. And we'll eventually see mm. exactly what the the capability of what we're seeing here, how will that will manifest itself in sort of ten, fifteen years, and you know figure out exactly where we fit within all of this. And I think hopefully it'll be well. Much I mean, just for to, the better. Yeah. To go back to what we were just talking about, remember it's. Um, it's up to us <laughs> as a species collectively to decide mm -hmm. where we want it to go. There's always this um, sort of the problem of passivity of, of many human beings, which is that they assume that things have their own direction, right? That technolo technology is determining a determining force and it will go wherever it wants to go. But that's not true. Like we ultimately are the determining force. And we're the ones who get to decide where anything goes, whether anything is pursued, the direction in which it's pursued. And if we don't like the direction it's being pursued en masse, then we better do something about it and change the course and sort of, you know, explain exactly how we would want this technology technology to be used. And there's obviously a lot of people causing for, uh, calling for pauses on how these technologies are being developed, which is probably a sensible, a sensible thing to do. I noticed Jeffrey... Uh, Hinton just 
um, resigned from Google the other day because he's a little bit worried about the the speed at which these things are are moving. And it's certainly absolutely amazing to me how we've gone in five years from the idea where I used to laugh at the idea of AI being ever achieving anything like a degree of sentience to it now being a little, it's, it's quite concerning now, the sort of the, the level that AI has reached so quickly. And then the acceleration doesn't seem to be slowing down, but speeding up. So maybe, I mean, if not a pause, there certainly needs to be a lot of public discussion on this, which fortunately there is. I think it's a good Yes. Thing. Yeah, and hopefully have, having some sort of AI regulation in place, um, both on a you know regional, national level, and perhaps even global level as well. Mm. Finishing off with sort of um, sort of going back to sort of time and sort of living our lives, you know, I think there's a lot of people listening to this about, well, that's all well and good about trying to, you know, make the best of our lives and and make decisions. But how do we incorporate that into our lives? And I think we touched on this a little bit. And but a lot of people will be asking the question: Well, hang on, should I be living? A, should I? Is my goal to live a happy life, or is my goal to live a fulfilled life? Because I feel like those two are kind of different. Because especially with the fulfilled life, you know, you will go through struggles. There's there's suffering will be part of the journey. But is that what it's all about? How do you guide people? to figure out what their North Star is um, at the end of the day in, in sort of making the best decisions for themselves within the context of what we, what we spoke about. Yeah, well, I mean, I would certainly agree with you that sort of just basic happiness is not, is not the goal. And generally, anybody that pursues what they think is basic happiness will soon get a shock when they achieve it and realize that it was not what they thought it was going to be, you know, having you know, whatever, $10 billion. That's often the very depressed people who have what they thought was going to give them extreme happiness and many houses and many items. So I would always push towards fulfillment. And as you say, one of the keys towards that kind of approach to life is obstacles. And there's nothing better in terms of, I mean, it's a deeper kind of happiness. There's nothing better than overcoming obstacles, right? One of the things, one of the examples I give in the book, at the end of the book, is um, this famous mouse utopia experiments of John of the biologist John Calhoun, and he raises colonies of mice in different conditions, and some of them he gives them the happy life, which is every every need is taken care of. They don't have to go out and forage, they don't have to do anything. They have uh, food at the, at the tap of a button, so it's sort of considered to be a mouse utopia in this colony, and then he has um, one where there's obstacles and they have to compete and they have to fight and they have to overcome challenges in order to get their food and survive. The utopian conditions led to mice that die very quickly. They're not, they're not only um, don't um, flourish, they actually die very quickly because everything's taken care of. Whereas the ones that have the obstacles and the challenges, uh, they're the ones that flourish and do better overall and survive well and are the strongest. So there's there's sort of biological, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a mouse model, so you can't directly extrapolate to humans, but there's clearly something to it. The fact that challenges and overcoming challenges uh, certainly lead to a far more fulfilling life and will lead to a, I don't know, a, a sort of stronger existence, I think. And it's something, it's a sort of deeper version of, of happiness 
And yeah, I find it interesting that you can actually see it in these experiments, something like that. I mean, I mean, the so if you take as well, it's, it's, so if you take it to the limit, um, and you assume that everyone is given the the privileges of life without um, any struggle or any suffering throughout their entire lives, do you think that, especially going back to the mice situation, would they are these mice dying because um, psychologically they've been given everything? Um, and they're sort of yeah, too relaxed, and uh, or is it because of other reasons that they're sort of having a shorter life? I don't know. I mean, it's probably some. There's, there will be metabolic reasons where there's certain things being stimulated by competition and challenge. You know, I mean, if you, if I mean, you, you would never really have sort of cortisol being triggered, for example. There's, there are certain biological processes and reactions that would simply not happen if everything were taken care of. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a biologist. I don't know the mechanisms involved, but there must be a whole bunch of these kinds of things that are being switched on. And you can even think in terms, I suppose, of epigenetics, the switching on, on and off of certain genes by environmental factors. There's clearly something going on there that when we have certain kinds of um, experiential experiences, um, there's sort of gene activation and deactivation which is the science of epigenetics so i don't know is the answer but i would imagine that it's something to something along those lines it's harder to think in terms of mouse psychology and uh, along those lines so I'm, i'd be more inclined to think it's something epigenetic and metabolic or something like that so would it be safe to say that when you know you can either when you you know making Decisions is one thing, but leading your life and trying to be influenced by the world is another. And you can either sort of leave your life and, and have the world dictate uh, what you want to do. And then you can sort of you know, be massaged in a way that sort of caters to the external environment, or you can craft something a bit more meaningful for yourself. It may not necessarily be what the world wants yet, but at least it could be something that you want that you could impart onto the world and then shaping the world as you see it, especially, again, this goes back to the whole notion of visualization and, and being part of that journey and being part of that collective experience. Would you say that there's that someone needs to have purpose and someone needs to find purpose in their life in order to make it more meaningful? Um, I would say that, I mean... Uh... You know, I, I wouldn't want to be so so harsh on people who are who are sort of passive in the world. I mean, there are probably some people who also experience some kind of meaning and comfort from being um, from not making decisions from and from being led by others. For them, maybe that is the kind of life that they want. Right? People want different kinds of life. You and me probably want something a bit more sort of impactful and leaving footprints on on things. I mean, one of the one of the points in this book was trying to decide what one of the problems with thinking that we need to go out into the world and sort of blaze this trail through the world and alter the universe, the fabric of the universe, is that we need to make sure precisely that it is us and not some other sort of forces, complexes, things that have made us a certain way that are not necessarily positive that are making us move into the world like this. Because often the people that are very good at doing this are 
narcissistic maniacs sort of lead, you know, the world leaders and the dictators who think, yes, I can control this entire country. I can be a force in the universe. They're, they're sort of the people you don't want doing that, which I suppose is a good reason for teaching everybody the way these things, uh, the way these things operate and how to get a hold of their, you know, I, I mean, I don't use the, the term true self or authentic self in, in the book, but there's something like that going on. That, that, that there is a something that feels right when you make decisions that feel right. There is a, a bo almost bodily feeling that this was the correct decision and it was you that made it rather than some some complexes or other forces. And there's a whole chapter in the book that I have on this um, process called individuation, which is precisely the psychological process of trying to figure out what are projections that you're making onto the world that are not really um, part of the world um, and trying to eliminate those projections and trying to get as much that is in your unconscious to the surface as possible. Because there's a, there's a nice um, metaphor that I always like to give, which is C.G. Jung's metaphor, uh, which is the idea that we're, our consciousness is like a cork bobbing in the ocean. And we, th we think that it's us moving around moving this thing around, moving ourselves around in the world. But really, it's just this whole sea of unconscious forces and external forces that are pushing us around. So we want to minimize that as much as possible so that we know that when we think we're making actions and we're making decisions, it's not somebody, something acting through us. So it's authentic. Because if, if not, then we'll never sort of feel good about, you know, where we end up as a result of, of making these decisions. Because it wouldn't yep. be ours. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's something to be said there very strongly about the individual having the autonomy to make those decisions themselves and and own them, whether they go both positively and negatively, because at least they can say, look, this was not because of, of anyone else but me. And I have to own this and take agency at the end of the day. And I think that's the greatest freedom one can have is to be able to to do that for themselves. Yeah. I mean, look, you, you mentioned education earlier and what you can do for raising children. I think this idea of understanding the notion of people and the self and sort of the influences and the complexes that it can pick up so that you have children who are sort of fully authentic beings who are capable of autonomously acting from something like this uh, deeper, deeper self is exactly the kind of thing that needs to be implemented. I mean, the, the this kind of schooling we have at the moment is, I think, absolutely uh, atrocious. It's one of my biggest regrets <laughs> is actually sending my kids to to school to go through through this system. I think it's appalling and needs to be seriously reconfigured and, and altered to have things more sort of human and purposeful and meaningful like these sorts of issues, like trying to figure out what, makes people tick what makes you tick because then you don't end up with people sort of losing their minds and having these meaning crises later on in in life which always seems to happen exactly well great said i think that was a great um insightful conversation to have on everything i hope everyone will uh listen to this with open ears and sort of get more insight and hopefully this becomes an education level uh sort of uh piece in and of itself to sort of tell people a bit more about you know, uh, everything we've spoken about from time to sort of the physics and sort of living our best lives and everything. 
Uh, I'll put all the notes into the show notes below. I'll put your book in and also a link to your uh, to the academic website as well uh, to who you are and sort of a little bit about your bio. But I uh, really appreciate it, Dean, and thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for the chat. Enjoyed it. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into this episode. If you like this episode, be sure to check out more by subscribing to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.